Mad Messiah, the second cycle. Floating eyes in Venice. Fragment, aging Jesuit. My earliest companions came into this place of memories and slow canals and silken ways and waited for ten thousand days till hope had gone. I call their name and follow them along the crumbling keys where all beneath is dark and wet. One day my ship will come and carry me to far Jerusalem. May she come soon, but not quite yet. Second cycle, poem one, The Friendly Neighbour. In the glare of the bright full moon, these eyes are close to the ground. As I calmly emerge with a slurping sound, and with delicate skill I remain quite still, like plaster calmly waiting to be set in the mud of the ancient lagoon. I watch the stooping silhouette of strangers driven by fear, the howling face in the flaming night, and I shed an unavoidable tear in the grey half-light, unobtrusive and discreet, close to their trembling mud-clogged feet. May they sleep with unclenched fist, and in their dreaming find new innocence. May the friendly morning mist soothingly unwind all shadow of malevolence. Here may they find true rest. May they proudly raise a practised hand to the brow and gaze at broken bits of land endlessly caressed by lapping water, swathing sky, and the bleak, barbarous cry of seagulls swerving with agility loudly at home. May they thrive in domesticity, food abundant, offspring numerous, and beneath the great arched dome, where every prayer ascends in hopefulness, may we all be friends. And if some friendly neighbour disappears, as may happen periodically, enfolded by the shifting mud or carried off by the flood of the tide, I call to mind with lavish sympathy the grief, the anguish and the tears of loved ones left behind. Cycle 2, Poem 2, A Helping Hand the lurking child explores as I watch and fully understand the burden of parental chores. Sailing up and down the coast, building homes and salting fish. It is my earnest wish to offer a helping hand as every neighbour should, but I warn the children not to boast about our antics in the mud. I lie still as a fallen tree, as all the children eagerly run up and down my back. At times they pretend there is a fortress to defend, and crouch behind my battlements, ready for some barbarous attack. Some will go for a ride, sitting astride as I amble peaceably, and if they have the sense to hold on very tight, I just might take them for a swim. It wounds me horribly to see my noble intentions impugned by faces grim with lurid inventions. 
It is so libelous and quite unfair. Who invents these overstated fears? Why all this half-baked reasoning? I am quite aware that only with the passing years can human flesh acquire due seasoning. I like my meat, tough, decrepit, flavorsome, and sweet. Cycle 2, Poem 3, The Relic Deathly still I await on the slick wet shore, for the cries of murderers hate to grudgingly subside. Then I will freely move once more among the languid waterways. Long before the days when a timid remnant came to hide from terror's wild and shrieking face, these eyes had come to rest on the featureless mud of this lonely place. They grew in numbers and audacity, zealously voyaging east and west in search of profit and sweet luxury, and honour for a new-born power, their banners high above the earth, exuberant and stern. I revelled in the hour when a city came to birth in the sly adventurer's return from a land as old as death. On the welcoming shore, with rapturous breath, they honoured San Marco, their dream, in a rough-hewn box of wood, raised high and proud. You will know San Marco's text, the treacherous scheme, the shedding of blood, the empty, folded shroud. His symbol is the lion's roar, not unlike my own deep growl. And I am saddened and perplexed that my city, in her glory, raises the lion's belittling scowl and not my own more amiable grin. I see the value of that story in this place of humble origin, and I admit to undue haste, but I was intrigued by the thought of a taste sweetly ripening for a thousand years. I was sadly unaware of how the flavour disappears when flesh returns to dust, and so it seems I must most dutifully make amends to dear San Marco and his faithful friends. Cycle 2, Poem 4, The Carrier With sovereign pose he samples the air, and his sleek, wet, dark pelt flows to where his long, lean tail plays in the water with casual flare. Further than the eye can see along the alleyway, the throng cries, Hail! His tiny forelimb beckons me to heave out of the water and wait. Amid the piercing din of the clamouring crowd, I see him indicate his desire for the procession to begin. I wind along the jubilant and loud labyrinth till the shadows turn aside to show San Marco's long, bright square. I move toward the golden arches where, with my passenger, I stand with pride. He waits motionless until every listener is devout and still. When we first secretly set foot on these unsuspecting shores, we knew that neither sword nor axe nor marching boot would lead to victory. 
and now the grim accumulated scores of death surpass all bygone times. From the gathering horde a wave of rapture climbs into the air on roaring wings. The carrier waits for silence to return. We watched our enemies yearn for calamity and death to seek us out. We have felt the mad dog's breath. But now, in a strange, inglorious and pleasing rout, the bragging hordes have fled. We stand contented and victorious among the bloated dead. Let every creature from the tiny worm to this ungainly beast on which I stand relish the flavours of our feast. And let me now affirm my heartfelt thanks to all who heeded my command and carried the curse to enemy ranks. Enough of talk. Let the festival begin. Allow this lazy brute to eat and grin till it can no longer walk. My chin aloof, I sadly recognize in the glimmer of ten thousand eyes a lamentable disrespect. I will not fail to seek a forceful remedy. I flex my sturdy tail, and with a practiced lurch of seamless ingenuity, dislodge the villain from his perch, and catch him in the hollow of my sturdy jaw, and pleasurably swallow. He will be seen no more. San Marco Square is still as the grave. I wait until the silence is undone, not with a warlike shout or the pitiful bleat of strangled pain, but with a rush of trembling feet seeking the nearest way out. I have the city to myself alone, and wander into every unused lane and every silent square. I crawl along the empty quay where I once noted furtively the dexterous flare of eloquent hands and the innocence of clumsy feet which bore the brunt of superfluity from distant lands. The memory of a child, sadly waiting on the waterfront, stirs a strange benevolence and leaves me beguiled. I watch with sweet familiarity the hesitant return of those whose flesh so frequently kept me nourished and content. May the passing hours of night no longer fill the greedy urn of death. May light-hearted cries be the playful ornament of a new unending festival. You know the story well. You taught the blind to see. Yours is the final victory. Whenever death comes out to dance among the lepers and the lame, inviting them to eat with smiling countenance and leaden feet, I hear millions whispering your name. Cycle 2, Poem 5 The Palace Raised arms, bleak cry, hair tarred with blood, you come like a demonic bird to where we crocodiles wait, interweaving with slow elegance. Arches of crocodile tails pointing to the sky like galleon sails in full magnificence, here you lie in state, 
Your broken skin dribbles as I taste and see with furtive grin your lavish generosity. To give one's flesh and blood one's physicality as drink and food suggests a mind relentlessly at home with all the wild and daring ways of art. I understand, I gaze in recognition of shared genius. Now you must be my guest and come and taste the subtle pleasures of my bliss. When you sail into my sweet lagoon on the placid water in the noonday light and the bow calmly veers towards the bristling masts and keys of the judeca, the diamond appears. In high serenity it floats with ease, pink and white, above the intersection of each archway's crocodile motif. I watch with proud affection, I linger like a floating leaf. When the carrier's dance of hate was overthrown, there was no monument for me to quietly appreciate my jawline proud and tremulous. As I had long since understood, my taste for certain forms of nourishment was vilified by the ungrateful populace. Imagine my enchantment and surprise when smiling lips and knowing eyes close to the sovereign's noble seat spoke of homage for my daring feet. When you called the greatest and the least to sit and share your kindly feast, how could you foretell what glory it would bring? No king or emperor can claim so much beauty crafted in their name. I too, though to a limited degree, have known that fervent swell, unalloyed and deeply comforting, of sweet emotion on my face as I stand before a place of beauty built for me. Cycle 2, Poem 6 Signor Bellini's Madonna Inspired by Giovanni Bellini's Madonna of the Meadow Beneath a mountainous display of blue silk she sits in the passing day, her fingers scarcely touching, almost holding back, as if perplexed by the careless lie of your head against her thigh, a tiny sleeping drunkard languishing between one indulgence and the next. Your foot points up to hooded wings. A long-beaked bird with shrill squawk is dancing with a squirming snake, and the raven on the thin bare stalk of a tall tree looks on with a cold eye. Beyond these fearful posturings a lazy champion sits, grudgingly awake, legs casually apart, in a crass reply to the mother in her simple chastity. Signor Bellini's art now forms a sweet trajectory along her shoulder line to tenderly caress your mother's wholesome cheek toward the towers and the roof tiles in the early afternoon. Can you hear the aching tune of a lonely flute? Can you hear it speak with thin-lipped smiles? while the white-roped figure 
slows its walk with the mournful curiosity of a cow turning to gawk. Signor Bellini graciously requests a curved and genial seat for mother and child. I pose with dignity, but our good-natured harmony is shattered by the figure's high-pitched wail. Curious heads from far and wide gather for news of a frightful tale, and when they see me stretched along the ground with the virgin on my rugged hide, I hear the righteous piercing sound of human animals at bay. To avoid undue embarrassment, I bid the virgin rise, and bowing to the venomous intent of the mob, I apologize and bid them all good day. Cycle 2, Poem 7, Signor Tiziano's Creation, inspired by Titian's Venus of Urbino. In the summer evening light she lies before her long-awaited guest with calm, unguarded elegance and a generous rump clothed in white protrudes from the finely painted chest with sweet incongruence. An imperious bared arm framed by the colonnaded tapestry demands the requisites of modesty to be produced this instant, right now, as her child, naked with finely arched brow, reclines on the crumpled, clean white sheet. May I fervently and proudly greet the one whose wisdom and benevolence welcomes me to this enchanting scene. Signor Tiziano has my confidence, as I have his. He knows my ways. He is not aggrieved if my gaze hovers discreetly between our heroine's alluring thigh and that dearest little friend at her feet appetizingly curled. He has no intention to offend when he asks, with a patient sigh, if the curtain might be left unfurled, and I sadly accept that my watchful eye might be out of place hovering above the lady's breast. As I am politely swept by the curtain's solemn grace into obscurity, my vision lingers on the lady's languid fingers brazenly at rest. I accompany the lady and her smile down all the years as we hover with good-natured guile on the Uffizi palace wall till a lonely messenger appears. Standing barefoot on the marble shore between the world's beginning and the end I see you longing for the soothing call of light-hearted love. You savor with elation, my solitary friend, Senor Tiziano's creation, enticingly at play with the earth below and the skies above, teasing the wounded and the strong in the elegantly gathering dust. I see... How in your loneliness you long, with amiable lust and with the famished way of flesh and blood, to be passionately named love's long-awaited food, tender, worshipful, and unashamed. 
Cycle 2, Poem 8, The Pilgrim. Fond admirers through the years have gazed with groans and tears at Mad Messiah hanging on his tree. Across high mountains and the raging sea they come to kiss the ground of that ancient place which felt your feet and saw your face and where miracles abound. A limping pilgrim with a noble heart is calling on his friends to start the journey and they gather with one mind, no trace of falsehood or conceit. They overcome each barrier, they find their way, their joy is deep, with kind laughter and untroubled sleep, and unaware of what the future brings of unknown worlds and influence with kings. With journey half complete, they stand amid the opulent displays, the jeering eyes, the winding waterways, and I watch him with his brotherhood, raising his head with sweet tranquility and open mouth as if to taste the sun. Your flesh and blood feeds his longing for Jerusalem. Along the crowded quays they walk in search of news and friendly talk, but voices knowingly debate the turning tides of distant war. They listen for the long-expected word, but like the rising score in some losing game, the passing days relentlessly accumulate. No news of peace is heard, no ship makes ready to depart. But as with Estragon and Vladimir, when Godot is unable to appear, I am enchanted by their foolish ways and disconcerting art. Cycle 2, Poem 9, Il Redentore, inspired by Canaletto's painting Il Redentore viewed from the Judeca Canal. They come in the shadows of the night, on the still water with silent ease and whispering breath and riveting formalities, the shroud-eating harbingers of death, and children open their eyes with fear in the dawn's grey light as the jingling, limping tune of the pizza camorti draws near. Out in the lagoon on a secluded isle I wait for the flesh and bones whose whimperings and groans have spoken with death as a friend. But when, with an anxious smile, they begged for the end to come with speed and mercy's name, death paid no heed and had no shame. At this grim, heart-rending hour, I do what must be done, all within my power, to move this foul contagion discreetly out of sight. Sometimes I wonder if you might not see in its full clarity the true nature of the high and worshipful esteem which you enjoy, while I must watch with calm humility as my own efforts go unrecognized. I am intrigued at how... The contorted face, the pitiful scream, the pale perspiring brow are strangely harmonised by calling out your name. They come to an imposing place of smiling mysteries, rising like a flame on the Judeca shore, 
and in the elegant display of geometric harmonies I see your glad arms opening to welcome and implore. Come, eat my bread and drink the wine. I hear laughter echoing on the serene waterway as footsteps with annual festivity approach in a hesitant line along the pontoon's wavering course. You who hold the gentle source of healing in your hands need only turn your eyes towards the whispering plea and a city haunted by death can be sweetly spared. And I shall arrange for detailed plans by Signor Palladio to be prepared, and Il Redentore shall rise on the new dawn's shimmering breath to carry the name of your benevolence. This place of worship, when finally complete, will be a monument to my discreet and kindly influence. Cycle 2 Poem 10, Signor Canaletto's Crocodile, inspired by Canaletto's The San Marco Basin with the Buccintoro on Ascension Day. On Ascension Day each year to honour battles gloriously won, the Buccintoro and its passengers appear to reenact with due solemnity the betrothal of the city and the sea. Beyond the gilded helm the wedding ring is cast, the deed is done. It falls into the silver-dappled realm, till once again its day of glory comes, with trumpet and the playful tap of drums. On the evening of the holy festival, fortune's gratified inheritors bask with studied nonchalance, till the water stirs and I move, discreetly sculptural. With an amiable glance at the bemused paralysis induced by my lazy withdrawal from view. Behind the fluid mask of the lagoon, these eyes watch all the sodden crevices and every unclosed shutter, every stone, and every floating interest passing through. Beneath the frayed and fractured keys I see how the ebb and flow of the tide mirrors the praise of the passing sun for the beauty of our city bride, rising heavenward, radiant, at ease. When you stood high above Jerusalem, I could taste the longing and the tears rolling down your face, for I too weep with mournful care for La Serenissima, beloved place, whose beauty is beyond compare. I weep amid the howls and jeers, the wounds of shame and bitter circumstance, as public harmony allows no reference to my place in history or my name. Signor Canaletto has my measure. I think we understand each other well. When observed with sympathy and leisure, his art exerts a potent spell, for he knows how to enhance every watery expanse with two eyes, furtively at play, not too near, and not too far away. My place in Signor Canaletto's high esteem has created quite a stir and evokes the mysteries of carnival, where masks are never what they seem. Mine is the most inscrutable of all. Yet masks 
are but a signature, a ripple on a proud reality where much has been achieved. This city's high repute in far-off lands inspires a litany of gratitude. We salute those nimble hands who have conceived countless works of music and the arts, and we must certainly include heroic travellers to distant parts. Signor Polo comes to mind. And let us not forget, in these enlightened days, Signor Casanova and his praise of femininity. I know him well, and if you are inclined, there is some possibility of gentlemanly conversation. His memoirs tell how Signor Casanova overcame, not unlike yourself, the pain of uninvited notoriety. He admires your reputation with our older families whose children can be carried off by plagues and other tragedies, imperiling the future of the line. They pray with heartfelt piety for you to bless their married state with the joyful sign of fruitfulness, well above what is required. And yet, though much to be desired, without due vigilance, fecundity is sure to dissipate the family inheritance. So gentle folk of high repute will always passionately pray that a child of meagre expectations might renounce the low temptations of the world and leave to others the pursuit of earthly gain and harmless play. I watch their delicate design unfolding like a pirouette as with serene and smiling etiquette they eat and drink your bread and wine. Cycle 2, Poem 11, The Boat Inspired by Turner's The Grand Canal, Venice The lagoon waits under the evening cloud and there is not much time. The lady's hand, frail and proud and stern with generations of command, pointedly accentuates her vexed tone. A slow, solitary chime is heard, and the oarsman smiles with discreet familiarity. Together they have grown into a kindly pact, his mask of deference, her unguided courtesy and artful wiles. Her eyes meet mine with a tremor of incongruence, and in a poised, unruffled act of recognition and disdain she holds my gaze. I fondly greet her grimacing contempt and sympathetically explain how the enfeeblement of her declining days could swiftly end to our mutual relief. With the smile of a disillusioned friend, she recalls her well-worn grief with dates of death and burial and the quiet part on the Isle of the Dead where the children lie. The oarsman knows by heart how each story has been set in loving ritual. As the seagulls cry, he works the rhythm of the deep, helping his aged passenger to keep her promise to the holy sacrament. She serenely notes with no regret the abandoned keys and old buildings like wrinkled skin, uncomplaining memories being brushed into oblivion. She calls on you to bless this crumbling monument and waits without distress till the unflinching line is drawn from the sky above to the grey dawn where life began in the all-embracing mud. I have seen the feast prepared by love to gladly feed with love's own flesh and blood. 
every strange and half-forgotten breed. Cycle 2, Poem 12, Peggy, inspired by Jackson Pollock's Eyes in the Heat. The day I first met Peggy Guggenheim, near her palazzo on the Grand Canal, the Vaporetto's friendly sound under a brooding sky brought intimations of that distant time, melancholy, almost incorporeal, when I first found this waterlogged location. An overly familiar cry made me turn with scornful irritation and an aggrieved stare to see beneath a large rococo pair of spectacles her frown, playful and grim, and balanced dexterously along one arm, her faithful companion in pampered bliss. Do take my darling cappuccino for a swim, and he'll give you one big wet woofy kiss. Beyond that crazy mask of wayward charm, I see the light of sympathy reaching out with nonchalance to quietly caress and calmly praise. She has invited me to dance with all the proud agility of Mr. Pollock's masterful displays, where looping light and shadow wildly fling. She allows no wavering. I move across the canvas gingerly, feeling ill at ease and out of place, but when I turn and see what has been done in unlikely loops of tangled grace. A new chapter has begun in my long odyssey. My creation is triumphantly unfurled, and the medium is red and lavishly applied, shed, spattered, splashed, and swirled. The ancient masters, with due deference, are solemnly agreed that this artist has indeed achieved a work of wild exuberance. Cycle 2, Poem 13 Il Ultimo Bienniale Do the villains make the hero bleed? The children want to know as they listen to some tale from long ago for where blood is to be found imagination takes firm hold with full attention guaranteed, as with smirking lips and squinting eyes, they seek out where the body lies. Most heroes from the ancient past wait upon the shelf till we decide to take one down and have a read, hoping for the mystery to cast its bloody spell. But with you there is no need. Not many heroes get to tell their listeners how to make their flesh and blood appear. This is my very self, before your eyes, right here. When you held up the bread and wine, you began a most intriguing storyline, and I have set myself the task of adapting your gesture to our age, though, being of little more than average creativity, I scarcely dare to ask for your approval and advice. Might I be a living sacrifice endlessly retold? Might my flesh be torn by faithful hands, who might reverently draw near to take this blood upon their lips and tongue? Where might this body find a strong and unseen father who commands a trembling second birth? And when I plead with him, what might I fear? How might I hang between heaven and earth? 
And in the tomb, what longing will survive? What if on the appointed day I go unnoticed by my grieving friends? What if my memory descends into oblivion, my name unrecognized? Will I be rescued from the glacial frown of death? Will my unseen father turn away? You will note with due relief that clear instructions have been written down. La Fondazione della Bienniale has been authorized to accept my body in the cause of art. I will make my admiring public part their lips in bewildered disbelief at the blink of what was once an eye. And from the aged city's languid air, I will make my last and parting prayer. Do you know how to live and bleed? and die.